0: That's enough fellowshipping, you're cutting into my time. (laughs) Chatty crowd. Um, I'm going to ask you to go to the book of Numbers, and we will be in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. Um, I'll take you there in a second. I want to give you an anchor verse. What you're about to see is highly factual and incredibly dramatic. It's one of the more profound stories in the Bible, and you're going to be tempted to come to this with a sense of, what? How could they do that? But my desire is that we would look through the lens that would cause us to be looking at a mirror back at ourselves to ask the question, could I do that? Would I have that same attitude? Paul writes a really hard question in Galatians. Let me take you to his questions, Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to please men? There is a reason in the Bible why God has to say to us over and over again, don't be afraid. Fear not, I'm with you, because he knows we have this great propensity towards fear of other humans. What do they think of us? How will they respond to what I say? What if I'm going to be thrown out of the social club? I don't want to go there. That drives a fear in us that we're going to see come off the pages in Numbers Chapter 13 and Chapter 14 a little bit this morning. But before we get there, I'm going to ask that God would use this to press on our hearts so we can keep ourselves in check. Would you pray with me? Let's pray that way. Lord God, I thank You for what You moved Moses to write down thousands of years ago, that we would have a very prevalent, very relevant, very current age image of how humanity responds in difficult situations when we're left with a choice. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to see how we're supposed to respond and what you would expect of us. We pray that that would happen through the working of the Holy Spirit this morning, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a capacity to understand that your Word is alive, it is active, it is sharp, and you're going to do some heart surgery And I open myself up to this, Father, I ask on behalf of everyone who's watching, everyone who's in the auditorium, everyone that's listening audibly, God, that we would put ourselves in the place where we're ready to respond to you in a way that would please you. I pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. amen. So at last, where you come to in the story, this new nation that's been born of God by incredibly powerful mighty works, they arrive at their destination. They have seen the faithfulness of God on display in ways that you and I have never seen. And they understand undeniably and unalterably, God is incredibly faithful to his work. Moses is firmly established as their leader. He's the guy that they look to and the Lord has performed amazing miracles in their midst. And now they're arriving at the most fertile area on the northern tip of the Sinai Peninsula, right on the border of the promised land. And now is the time for exploration. And they've got to put a plan together. They need a strategy that will be in place to help them understand what they're supposed to do. The sheer vastness of their population, the enormity of who they are as a people group, arriving in mass on this plateau is absolutely overwhelming. We're, we're told that they're alone, There's are 600,000 plus fighting men. Look with me on the screen at Numbers chapter one. Verse 45 says, all the numbered men of the sons of Israel by their father's household from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war in Israel, even all the numbered men were 603,550 that's just the fighting men alone that's not all the 19-year-olds and under that's not all the women that's not all the children that's not all the men who are not capable of fighting and so they arrive in mass on this plateau and they're looking out over the promised land and the desire to enter this land is absolutely unquestionable because everybody wants a permanent home everybody wants a place to say is their own God had told Abram in Genesis chapter 15, Moses, or Abraham, there's a day when I'm going to take your, your descendants to a land that will be rich in milk and honey. It will be a good and spacious land, Abram. But they're going to have to go through 400 years of slavery first. And the, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so God was going to allow time for even, if possible, the Amorite people that they would come to God 400 years later, they're coming out of slavery, they go through the exodus, and they stand now on the border. And so verse 1 of chapter 13 of the book of Numbers. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of them, men were who were heads of the sons of Israel. Kadesh, or sometimes people pronounce it in English, Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea is this region in this land of Paran, and it's mentioned multiple times throughout the Bible. It seems to be a central place where they would hang out, especially during the 40 years of wandering, and it's at the southern border of Israel. Kadesh is this place also where there were multiple battles that were fought, and Abraham actually went to war there with the Amalekites, way back, way, way back in time. Moses selects 12 men. These are 12 very healthy men one from each tribe, they're gonna do some reconnaissance, they're like an advance team, and they're not just anyone, they're specifically leaders. Now these are not the same leaders that are referred to in Numbers chapter one. Numbers chapters one talks about God numbering the people, and they choose the elders among them to help them with the population count. This is a different group of leaders here. These guys are younger, they're, they're more virulent, they're much more active physically, But they're also less experienced, and they seem to be driven more by emotion, and they're going to have a huge requirement put before them. They're going to be the exploration team. Now, you can imagine they're going to set out with a great deal of confidence because they got an adventure in front of them, and what young guy doesn't love an adventure? So they got the spirit of adventure in front of them, but they're going to return in fear, and it is not a fear of God. It's a fear of man. Keep going with me, verse 17. When Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So the instructions are really comprehensive. Moses is being very, very thorough. He says, I want a really good report. I want to know about the towns. I want to know about the people, and I want to know about the produce. And the plan is very practical. Uh, Clearly, Moses has some knowledge of the geography of the area. Maybe when he was a ruler in Egypt, he made his way up into that region. I don't know. But he has some knowledge of the geography of this area. He knows where the hill country is. He knows where the valleys are. He knows where he wants them to go. So from their southern location, this recon team is being sent out to move north into the Negev. And they're going to ascend through this hill country, and they're going to journey as far as they can through the land, hopefully undetected. But he said, I want you to pay very special attention to the quality of the soil. I want to know if there's timber there, how big are the forests, and bring back some samples of the fruit. Now, that they're gathering grapes would indicate to us who live in the Western world that it sounds like this might be October. But in the Middle East, they begin getting the first ripe grapes in the end of July, so very likely this is August. They're going to be gone 40 days, so they're going to arrive back to where Moses is at probably in September. He says, I want a quality report. I want to know what the land is like and what is the morale of the inhabitants. And Deuteronomy chapter 1 indicates the purpose of the mission. The entire purpose of the mission was to strengthen the faith of all those 2 million plus people who are back waiting to know what are they about to walk into. That's what's supposed to drive this. Verse 21. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob and Hamath. When they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, where Ahaman, Shishai, and Telmai, you guys try pronouncing these names, the descendants of Anak were. Now there's a name that would resonate. It's not like he's just listed Bob and George and Fred, but Anak, Anak, that one should stand out to us. Now, Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. Recent archaeological digs have revealed that Zon is probably the exact same city we call Tanis today. Probably the same, not entirely sure, but on the delta of the the Nile, right in that northern part of Egypt, and that's a really, really ancient city. So the journey begins, and the journey begins in the southernmost portion, and it takes them to the northernmost point, all the way up to Rehob which is 250 miles to the north, and then it's gonna be 250 miles back. And they're supposed to do this in 40 days, so that's 12 and a half miles per day, plus they're doing recon, plus they're collecting samples, and they're studying the people, so these guys are fit physically, they're very capable of doing what they've been assigned to do, and the first city they discover is the city of Hebron. Now, Hebron is mentioned specifically because it's such an ancient city. And actually, there's a mention here of the reflection of their amazement at the size of Hebron. He says it's seven years before the zone that it was built. Well, it goes all the way back to the time of Abram when Abram fought a battle there. And that particular battle was around a little town called Hebron, which was just a shepherd village at that time. But this is like 600 years later. And this city has expanded, and now it's fortified, and it's got walls around it, and it's got a huge population. It's also the place where Abraham and Sarah have been buried, and Isaac and Rebekah, and Jacob and Leah. Now soon, the spies are becoming so preoccupied with the sandal sizes of three huge men who live in Hebron, they totally disregard the promises of God. The three descendants that are mentioned here are the descendants of Anak. And Anak, the Anakites, they're renowned for their very large stature. Now, I referred to this in the first service, and there happened to be an individual here who was six foot nine, so I called him out as an example because the Anakites were referred to as being really, really large. There's a cool image. If you imagine that this can't possibly be, you can look online and you'll see Andre the Giant, who is a professional wrestler, who was around seven foot tall, he tipped the scales at 525. He stands next to Wilt the Still, Wilt Chamberlain, who stands seven foot two. And the short little guy in between them, who barely comes up to the rib cage, his name is Arnold Schwarzenegger. So Arnold barely makes it to their rib cage. These guys are huge. Now those guys are tipping over seven foot. We're told most of the Anakites are recorded to be somewhere in the range of eight feet tall. Goliath is recorded in the Bible as being nine foot tall. There's a king in the scriptures that is recorded as having a 13 foot bed because he's so big. You can understand why that would be intimidating if you've ever stood in an airport or perhaps in a shopping area when somebody who plays professional football comes up alongside you and stands next to you, it is very intimidating, isn't it, just to have a person of that size. This is what they're looking at, and they went up and they've spied out the land and they see these individuals, and soon they begin paying very close attention to these individuals, verse 23. Then they came to the valley of Eshcol, and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs. Just pause there for a second and get a picture of this. Like two hunters going into the wilderness to carry out a deer that they have shot, they have gathered a cluster of grapes that is so big, a single branch that it requires two guys to put it on a pole and carry it out along with the figs and along with the pomegranates. This this valley is very near Hebron, and this particular valley is called the Valley of the Cluster, that's why it gets that name, Eshkol. You have never seen a grape cluster like this. So large, two guys need to carry it, it's like they've rediscovered the Garden of Eden. And the wow factor is intentionally focused on here because the size of the cluster of grapes alone should reveal the greatness of God's blessing. It should remind the Israelites, here's what's in store for you. Here's how God has blessed the land and prepared a path for you. Here's how He's going to go before you. If they will only trust God, this land will provide an amazing life for them. To this very day, unless you've been to Israel, you probably wouldn't know this, but in Israel, the Department of Tourism still uses the logo of those grapes. Let me put the image up on the screen for you. They use it to advance the Department of State, the Department of Tourism, with two guys carrying grapes out of the wilderness. Now, church, given all the amazing experiences these individuals have gone through, everything that they've seen in recent months, would you not reasonably conclude that finally it's time to believe God's power? Finally it's time to claim His promises. But what should be intoxicating joy instead fills them with paralyzing terror. Verse 25 when they returned from spying out the land at the end of the 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Verse 27, thus they told him and said, we went into the land where you sent us and it certainly does flow with milk and honey and this is its fruit. Now the first portion of the report is very truthful, it's very honest, and it's unfortunately laced with apprehension. In the eyes of 10 of the 12, the spectacular abundance of the land is being canceled out by the people who dwell in it. They're acknowledging the land is really rich, it's exactly what you said, Moses. It really does flow with milk and honey. And that does go all the way back to God speaking to Moses in Exodus chapter three saying, Behold, I'm going to lead these people out of Egypt. I'm going to deliver them from Pharaoh, and I'm going to take them to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That very familiar phrase is supposed to convey profusion of resources. And upon hearing the report, Moses' heart has to be pounding out of his chest. Like, yes, God was absolutely right. This is what's going to be for us, until... Verse 28, nevertheless, this is the Ten still speaking, nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. New Hope has been my experience, and I know this to be true because I personally have become good at it. I know it's true of humanity. It's been my experience that God gives really great assignments, and we spend a lot of energy finding reasons not to do the very thing He called us to do. I won't ask for anybody to say an amen on that because we know it's true. God says, I want you to do this. God opens up the opportunities, and we find reasons to cancel out the opportunities. Immediately in the same breath as which they're praising the land for its abundance, the spies begin in verse 28 by saying, yeah, we got a problem. We got a really big problem, and they begin using this very limiting phrase. The word in English is nevertheless. In the ancient language, epes kai, This this is a very negative phrase. It's a strong adversative. Their entire focus is on the obstacles. Uh, I'm sure that you've had people like this in your life. Perhaps you still do. Uh, I've told you before, I'm an optimist, and that means I'm counterbalanced by pessimists, and I, I really value the pessimists in my life because they do keep me in check, this is not just pessimism that you're looking here. Pessimists get labels like you're a worry wart or you're a wet blanket or you always find reasons to shut things down. But let's take that over to the spiritual level. When you combine pessimism with no confidence in God's capacity and then look for reasons to talk other people out of trusting God, that's what's going on here. They will not praise God for what He's about to give them. In other words, they're going for the exact opposite. These grape clusters that they brought back, they become the reinforcing source for just how enormous the threat is. Yeah, those grapes point to plenty, plenty of people, big people, and we don't want to go up against big people. So there's no joy in this story. There's fear here but they're not happy with just that description. They begin listing off the cities and the cities they list as being impregnable. They describe them as being inaccessible. It's beyond our reach. And then they use some deliberately inflammatory words that they know will stimulate people's attention. And the listing of the inhabitants of this region is done for one reason and one reason alone it will trigger terror among the people. And so they say, the Amalekites live there, and the Jebusites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and then they cap it off by saying, and the Canaanites are there. If you've read the Old Testament, you understand, they are a vile and violent people. These are people who kill babies for pleasure. They are a very, very vile group of individuals. And 10 of the 12 in this group see these things as being insurmountable obstacles. So I want you to catch what's going on. They're implicitly nullifying the Word of God. And at the mere mention of these other nations, it causes an enormous stir among the crowd and the crowd gets really noisy at this point. Verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. Now just pause there for a second. This is what I picture Caleb having to do. Quiet down. Quiet, quiet down. Quiet down, you guys. Listen to me. And then we're told Caleb said. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. Only two out of 12, only Joshua and Caleb bring the positive report. How are they doing that? When the crowd is being predisposed to run away in the other direction, when 10 overtalk the two, how are these guys bringing a positive report? Because of faith. And it's gonna sound really simple to say, But you know what it's like to be in a social setting where you have to speak against the crowd. How does Caleb do this? He has faith because he's seen God in action. And he's saying, let's take it. It's waiting for us. And this is not bravado. He really believes that God is giving them the land. The response, verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said... We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad, and I put it in brackets, an evil report. You'll see why in a minute. An evil report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in spying it out, it is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw, and it are men of great size, There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. You hear them say, we are not able to do it, and they're right, because it's God who's going to do it through them. If it was dependent upon us, we fail every time. So they're rightly saying, we're not able to, if they had said, but our God is able to, well, they'd be in line with Caleb. But this is an incredibly strong denial. We are not able to, and this denial includes denying the power and the presence of God. Ultimately, what they're really saying here is, God will not bring the victory. Ten men can certainly stoke more fear and talk louder than two really brave guys, especially if the crowd is already predisposed to this. But at this point, their words shift over into total exaggeration. They begin talking about something that can't be a reality. Yeah, the Anakites are large, they're really tall dudes, and they've got really big grape clusters. But they've transitioned over into saying, these guys, they're the Nephilim. But that can't be. Because the flood of Noah destroyed an entire population of the earth, save eight people. The Nephilim were wiped out at that time. But these guys know something about people's fears. Other than their own personal slavery experience, remember they've only been out of slavery a year and a half. The most horrible memory among the ancient people is the global destruction of the planet in the flood of Noah. And the Nephilim are part of the flood and this stokes fear among these individuals. And so they begin dredging up lies in order to give credence to this worst case scenario. See, the the use of the Nephilim is deliberately provocative and this outrageous misrepresentation is put in there because they know they can stoke people to fear. And so Moses calls them out and says, these guys are bringing an evil report. Your Bible says maybe a bad report, I don't know what translation you have, but let me show you the word that's actually used here, the word debah. This particular word means, they're bringing a slanderous report. They're bringing something that is so evil, it's full of infamy and slander, and they're now claiming the land consumes its inhabitants. Oh wait, just a minute ago, they said it flows with milk and honey. They've said it's got grape clusters that we've seen with our own eyes that'll provide for people. It's got figs, it's got pomegranates, it's lush. And now you're telling us it's going to devour us? We're gonna die due to the hostility of the environment? Well, fear has taken over at this point, and they're appalled and they're terrified by the description, and so the people break down completely. Verse 1, chapter 14, then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. So this vicious report, this evil report, this bad report spreads like a virus. And the reports of Caleb and Joshua, they're not even acknowledged. The population now can only envision walled cities and giants and a vicious wilderness, and suddenly the image of this massive cluster of grapes is this indication of doom like this. If the grapes are that big, how big are the people? Look at what they need to eat. But notice what's not going on. Sadly no one is talking about the power and the might of God except for Caleb, Joshua, Moses, Aaron, out of two million people. Is this not the same God who split the Red Sea? Is this not the same God who led them to Mount Sinai? Is this not the same God who came in thunder and power and fire on the mountain and everything quaked and people collapsed on their face? Is this not the same God who split a rock open and brought them water, let alone the manna? See, I can just hear God saying, who do you think made those grapes? Where do you think those things came from? This is like Paul in Romans chapter 1 saying, wake up, people. Look at the sky around you. Look at the stars. Look at the ocean. Where do you think that came from? All of this serves to tell us, church, just how strong the fear of man actually is and why God has to say, fear not. Because fear unchecked, when it's within us, it becomes its own fuel. It's this self-propelling force that magnifies and it expands if it's not kept in check. So Paul asked the really hard question in Galatians 1, Am I seeking to please man, or am I seeking to please God? Which is it? Where do I stand? Back into the story. The terror rages through the camp that night, and it is profusely out of control among the people. The spirit of fear and the spirit of rage has taken over. I, I read so many authors, sometimes I lose track of who I read, and I captured a quote, and I don't know who said it, otherwise I would tell you, but I thought it created a really good image in my mind to help me understand what's going on. This author said this, imagine them to be consumed with the worst sort of rage, a picture of screaming, rending, throwing, cursing, anger, and intoxication of grief. And on top of that, we're told in verse two, everybody began blaming Moses and Aaron they began grumbling against them it says now moses and aaron are suddenly at center stage and they become the targets of the fear but in reality if you know the story you you know what's really going on here you know they're actually grumbling against the lord the fear of man is so downright irrational they come to one conclusion you should have just let us die in egypt Think about everything that they've seen in the Exodus people. And we're tempted to look at this and say, I would never do that. I would never be that afraid of somebody. After seeing what God has done? See, we look at this from this perspective, from the stance of belief in an all-powerful God. Modern Christians would look at this and say, that is absolutely intolerable behavior. And it's only amplified by what's coming in verse three. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. You really do need to drink in what's going on here. They're proposing a complete rejection of God's plan, God's promise to deliver. This is what's known as apostasy. They have become apostate. When you know the truth, at one time in your life you embrace the truth. These are people who worshiped God at Mount Sinai, and they understood the truth, and yet they choose to walk away. That is apostasy. And so the Hebrew verbs really pile up in this sentence here. While these traitors are attempting to unleash fear and the rebellion is reaching its climax because now they've transitioned over, they're not blaming Moses and Aaron anymore, now they're blaming God and they're rejecting God and they want Egypt and the more they wail, And the more they cry, the more extreme their words become, and the more they draw others in. Throughout millennia, mob mentality has led to rampages in our own generations. We've seen riots, we've seen how it produces lynchings, this is humanity. 1.0, thousands of years ago, in a mob mentality, they've lost all control, and now they're turning their guns directly on Yahweh. And in their depraved mind, they're concluding, the Lord is to blame for this. So now they're not just scorning the land, now they're scorning God, and they're packing their bags, and they want to go back to Egypt, and Pharaoh would love that. Pharaoh would think, this is absolutely awesome. They failed, and now I've got them back. I'm going to work them twice as hard. So having worked themselves into this frenzy, they now find themselves willing to be the footstools of their Egyptian taskmasters. Total ingratitude. Total ingratitude for everything that God has done for them. And now they're saying, we'd rather just die in the wilderness. Well, that's what they're going to get. Death is exactly what they will get. And the most reprehensible charge they make against God is... God just wants to kill our babies. He just wants our little ones to become plunder. In Deuteronomy, they go so far as to say God actually hates us. It's not rational thinking. The, The very thing which sets Moses apart from this crowd is his absolute total faithfulness to Yahweh. But that which is identifying this nation is the fear of man. Galatians one ten. So in response to all this, Moses and Aaron, they fling themselves down on the ground, utterly prostrate before God, and this posture, catch this before you read it with me, this is showing their awareness that God is about to burst on the scene. Verse 5, then Moses and Aaron fell on their face in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, and they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, the land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then He will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Now just check, Joshua and Caleb have personally been there. They've actually seen it and they're reminding them this land is really rich, but it may be just youthful optimism in which they're saying, you guys, you don't need to rebel against God. Here we go, verse nine, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us, do not fear them. So let's just picture this setting. Moses and Aaron are on the ground, totally prostrate before the Lord, and they've covered their head because this is what you do when you're in awe and you're in fear of what God's about to do. And Joshua and Caleb are still standing up, and they're ripping their clothes, and they're imploring people, don't rebel against God. Don't turn your back on Him. And then Caleb goes so far as to say, their protection has been removed, you guys, The way this phrase is used here is their shadow has been removed. Now, in the Middle East, the notion of having your shadow or a shadow is a sign of mercy. It's a sign of protection because where it's searing hot, you need those walls to give you shade. You need oasis. You need protection, something that's going to get you out of the sun. And Caleb has said, they don't even have shade There's no structure that they have. There's no walls. There's no fortification. There's no factors of any size that can bear up and stand against our God. Now, logically, you would look at this and say, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Caleb, only four out of two million plus people. I think that's probably a little extreme to say it that way. Because certainly Moses' wife and Joshua's wife and their children, and I'm sure there's a handful, a remnant at least, of others who are faithful that that are not taking this kind of an attitude. I suspect, suspect they're not the only persons out of the entire population. But it causes you to step back and say, I have millions who have seen God's power? So there's no wonder that Moses and Aaron fall on their faces. It's the ultimate sign of awe. A line has been crossed, and they are expecting the presence of God. So they're on ground in fear of what God is about to do. Joshua and Caleb are pleading, trust the Lord, and yet the people won't listen. So Joshua, in deep distress, just shreds his clothes. Verse 10, but all the congregation said to stone them with stones, Then the glory of the Lord appeared, to which you'd want to say, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, because that's not good when that happens that way. There's something really dangerous here. As a matter of fact, this is one of the more chilling lines in Scripture, this sudden flare-up of the presence of God. The rebellion is so outrageous. God is is burning with fury. I'll come back to that in just a moment. If you're new to church, maybe new to New Hope, let me help you understand something if you're not familiar with the Bible. An accurate biblical view is not that of an angry God smoldering with rage, looking for another wretch to zap. If that's your image of God, that's not an accurate image of God. Biblical faith understands that God truly desires to smile over his people. But there's times when lines are crossed. Judgment comes when people will no longer listen, no longer repent, and no longer believe. And in the midst of this fear-driven rage that's building into this storm that could result in the stoning of some righteous people, the Holy God in an awesome display of His wonder has just burst onto the scene because God can only be provoked so far before the flame of His wrath is kindled. And here, the anger of God is at a fever pitch and with but a word, He can vaporize them. It could be reduced to ashes in just a blink. And Moses and Aaron have a foreboding sense that this is what's about to happen. It's why they're prostrate on the ground. And there they lay, grieving, waiting, wondering what is he going to do? And the sudden theophany of the Lord in this moment must have been staggering in this instance. But what I want you to see in verse 11 is this. God does not thunder here. This is more like a slow burn, and he begins speaking very directly and specifically about their outrageous behavior, and I struggle with an English word to capture this. I think it's me just giving an anthropomorphism to God, trying to give a human quality to Him, but I I would say this moment seems to be bewildering to God. If if I'm inaccurate, I, I apologize on that, but read it with me. Look at this, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst, I will smite them with pestilence. And I'm going to leave it hanging there until next week. Not just to be dramatic because I really, 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 really want you to chew on what we've just seen here. I'm gonna bring this together for you so you understand where this has gone. But I want you to chew on this in light of what we're looking at next week. The word that God chose, God Himself chose to use here is a really strong term for the utter disregard for someone. I don't know if you've ever had someone who's totally treated you like you were yesterday's trash, or perhaps you've done that in your past. You've despised someone, that's the word that God chooses to use here. This Hebrew word, last one of your notes, naats. God's saying, how long will these people scorn me? Spurn has the effect, but we don't really use that much in the English world. How long do they blaspheme me? How long will they have contempt for me? And that last word, how much longer are they going to provoke me? Now, if you know the story, you understand that Moses is about to implore God, and instead of killing the rebels in one swoop, he condemns them, everyone, over the age of 20. 20 years' age and up, he condemns every one of them to a death sentence of a pathetic existence in the desert. One day, one year for every 40 days that the spies were gone. 40 days gone, they're gonna get 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years of a listless existence. They are a banished people, landless, homeless, without a country. And ultimately the sands of the Sinai desert will wrap them like a grave cloth and it will become their grave. Here's what I want you to take out the door with you. In our culture today, our modern world, which we are all part of the culture, moderns attempt to reject passages that speak of God's wrath. Look at the Bible and really prefer not to read about the wrath of God or the punishment of God. It's too uncomfortable. It's too offensive. And moderns prefer Comfortable passages in the Bible. I'm asking this question How uncomfortable is hell? How uncomfortable is the reality of what God says is waiting for people who reject Him? Do we actually believe, as the people of God who are part of His church, do we believe in a God who will bring judgment? And if we do, he will ultimately bring judgment on those who hold him in contempt, who scorn him, who spurn him, who reject what he's offered. So how does that translate to my daily living? How is that translating to my interactions with the people that I love? How does that translate to my social circle? When I go to school, when I go to my workplace, when I'm hanging out in my neighborhood with my friends, does this reality make a difference? See, the central issue in the reality of what we've just examined is this. Refusing to believe in the Lord's capacity is causing individuals to scorn God. People are holding Him today in contempt. This is precisely what Jesus warned the people about in the first century when he was in Capernaum. God put himself on display. Jesus did amazing things in the city of Capernaum, and yet the people rejected him. They refused to acknowledge him as a Lord of glory. So Jesus had to say to the citizens of Capernaum, I'm telling you, woe to you, It will be more tolerable for the people of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for you. Jesus went on to say, Sodom will rise up in judgment against you because you have seen me and you have rejected me. The church today knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We sing on Sunday mornings, holy, holy, holy. Does that translate to our work environment? Paul precisely spoke of this issue in Romans chapter one. He said this utter disregard for God, it leads to annihilation. Look at the stars in the sky. Look at the oceans around you, this lush planet. Where do you think it came from? That's Paul's argument in Romans chapter one. Historically, what you've just seen, church, is a watershed moment. See, this is historically the very core of God's covenant being brought into question. God said to Abraham, I'm making a covenant with you. I'm gonna do exactly what I said I would do. I'm gonna bring you into a land that's flowing with milk and honey and I'm gonna make you a people who will reflect my values and who I am. And these people are bringing that covenant, God's promise into question. So at the heart of all this is the most significant spiritual issue humanity has ever dealt with Do humans believe that God will do what He says He will do? If you're a human who believes that God says He will do what He says He will do, will you say amen with me? Amen. Amen. I stand with you. God will do what He says He will do. Those who reject a relationship with God really will be punished. So I'm left asking this question. Can our generation, can the present population of this planet allow for a God who must deliver retribution or have we become so soft that we have to insist that He can only be known as warm and fuzzy? If we deny the God who demonstrates wrath, New Hope, we're denying the true picture of a loving God. Why do I say that? why else did Jesus come? If it wasn't to save us from our sins and from the wrath of God, why else did the Son of God come from heaven? It makes no sense if He didn't come to rescue humanity from the very thing God says is going to happen if people don't listen to Him. And our generation has to face this issue. Is God serious when He says eternity is at stake? I stand before you saying, yeah, he's serious. So I'm going to pray with you right now to close this because I do want you to chew on that between now and next week. Let's pray together. Father, the human in me is so tempted to want to be humorous in moments like this, to lighten the tension in the room, but I recognize the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit and that we as your people have to feed on these things and respond in kind. That we would recognize that you have called us to a great opportunity. But the fear of man many times drives us in the opposite direction so afraid of what people will think of us and yet you stand as the Lord of glory saying do you fear me or do you fear man so father where I've come up short I I confess that and I ask for your forgiveness I pray for each of our congregation for each of the people who will listen to what you have to say through your word that we would be willing to be humble enough to say to you We have failed in the past. Help us to be bold in the future. God, I pray now that you would send us out the door with your blessing on us and use us for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray that his glory would be known among the people. And we ask this in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, Amen. If we haven't met yet, after the service, I'll be down here in the front. I'd love to meet you. Otherwise, have a great week, New Hope.